0: Hey, recording. Hi everybody! Welcome to the Transplant infectious Disease Podcast. Today we have uh, a guest from uh, Northwestern, Peter Angarone, or is it Peter Angaroni?
1: uh Michael Angaroni. So, Michael so Angaroni. Uh, Where yeah, did I get the Peter from? Where did that the middle from? name is Peter? So, oh, yeah. Michael Angaroni. Sorry about that.
0: So uh, welcome. Now that we got the names correctly and uh, from Chicago. And does that mean that you go with uh, the deep dish pizza or are you a New York style?
1: So growing up, I was all about the deep dish, but I think having gone to some of the places, the newer pizza places around here and my wife kind of becoming addicted to the pizza oven that we have, Mm -hmm. uh, I like the kind of Nepalese pizza. So it's kind of that bordering on the new york style and a little bit of the thicker dough
0: got it all right well every time that i'm in chicago i i just absolutely love the food the various food options including the pizza and of course uh, so are you
1: a cubs or a white Sox fan uh i am a white Sox fan even though i grew up on the north side of chicago when mm-hmm. i was younger i'm a white Sox fan so diehard white Sox fan
0: all right. Well, last time I was in Chicago, I uh, went to a White Sox game. They uh, unfortunately lost, but it was great fun. It's a nice stadium.
1: It is. It is. It is a really nice stadium. It's a newer stadium. Like it was a shame to see Comiskey Park go many, many years ago. But it is a nice stadium that they built.
0: So, when you're not cheering for the White Sox, or during the time that you're cheering for the White Sox, tell us what uh, you're up to and uh, how you got to uh, where you are in transplant infectiouses.
1: Yeah. So my journey to infectious disease itself started after I got out of high school um, in the late 80s. So I actually went into the military after high school and was a um, med tech and a field medic by kind of your job specialty. Mm -hmm. And during the Gulf War, I actually went out to Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War, and my unit was attached to a biologic weapons unit. So I got to work with those individuals, I actually, when I came back, I actually got to do some research at USAMRID and it got me really interested in microbiology, which i that's what I got my degree in. And while I was working after I graduated college at Abbott Labs, I started volunteering with a bunch of HIV charities. Um, and it really kind of sparked my interest in HIV and medical care. And so I think that's really what spawned my passion for infectious diseases as I went into med school. And then I got turned on to transplant infectious diseases during my fellowship. So at Northwestern, we have a really productive and busy transplant program, both for solid organ and for stem cell. And I think I just really became fascinated with the patients that we were seeing, the pathology, the infections, I think the teamwork. So the fact that every one of those patients is managed by a team and there's a lot of collaboration which i really enjoyed um and so that's what really got me on the path to transplant infectious disease after i finished my fellowship
0: wow so uh first of all thank you for your uh service both to our country and then to uh, all the patients uh and and which branch of the military were you on i was in the army in the army yeah. and uh is, is there a special uh huach here that you-
1: <laughs> Um, I don't have one. So You don't have one. Okay. <laughs> no. And, and uh when it comes to Army Navy games, I guess uh, you're all Army. Uh I, I am when I when I do get the chance to watch them. Um, although some of my friends in the Navy uh kind of disagree with me on that one. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> And is Chicago a uh, Army or a Navy town or
1: both? It's more Navy. So we have the Great Lakes um, Naval Base that's up north of Chicago in one of the northern suburbs Mm -hmm. uh, where naval cadets are trained. And so there's a lot of uh, naval personnel that you see walking around the city uh, when they get time off. So it's more of a naval town, which is kind of interesting because we're on a big lake, which I guess makes sense, but you don't Mm -hmm. typically think of Lake cities as being naval. You think more of the cities that are on the coasts, on the coast. uh, California yeah, yeah. and on the East Coast. So,
0: now uh, aside from uh, the United States, our second largest listenership for the podcast is actually Saudi Arabia. And, oh, wow. I've been there in recent years. I think you won't recognize the place if you ever go, uh, if, if you ever go visit there it's it's the The pace of progress has been absolutely uh, amazing and And the young people, the young physicians
1: there are so inspiring. They definitely are. I would love to go back. We just had one of our uh, transplant fellows so um, was from uh, Saudi Arabia, so Maha Lamri. Um, and she just uh, went back to Saudi Arabia. Um, And the pictures she would show me were amazing how different it was from what I remember when I was there. And even the hospital that we worked in, so uh, the King Faisal Hospital, which is where she works at, Mm -hmm. is much different than what I remember. There's much larger buildings. It's expanded a lot more. Yeah, I would love to go back. it It was a really interesting experience, especially when the tensions of the Gulf War were over because I was mm-hmm. there for probably about an extra month after the war was over. And so it was interesting to kind of walk around Riyadh and Daharan and some of the other uh, mm-hmm. cities in Saudi Arabia. And the people are are extraordinarily friendly and just the the country itself is very nice. And it's so different from Riyadh, which is more in the desert. And you go to a city like Daharan, which is more in the Persian Gulf, like how different they are as well. Oh wow. Wow.
0: So you settled into uh, Chicago and Northwestern, have done uh, research on uh, HIV, and also have done quite a bit of work on uh, diarrheal illnesses in immunocompromised patients. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So um, that was something that, you know, I was observing uh, working on the transplant service. So our solid organ patients uh, suffer from diarrhea quite frequently. And it just kind of interests me like, you know, are we going about the diagnosis wrong? Are we ordering too many tests, not enough tests? Or are we treating inappropriately? So uh, working with one of our fellows at the time, Ignacio Ichenique, we actually reviewed our experience over about uh, a year and a half of patients that were hospitalized with diarrhea, whether it was community onset or hospital onset diarrhea, to try to see, can we figure out what was the cause? Could we make a diagnosis? Um, with that. Our study was kind of interesting because a majority of the patients we did not have a diagnosis for, so over 60%, whereas they had negative microbiologic tests, um, negative PCRs that were done, but almost all of them, the diarrhea was self-limited. So of Mm -hmm. those that didn't have a diagnosis, over 90% just got better with time. And when we did make a diagnosis, it was most frequently clostridium or clostridioides difficile infection uh, norovirus or uh, cytomegalovirus mm-hmm. uh, as the major cause when we could identify a cause. Um, and then with that, um, I worked with Dr. Eisen on his uh, project, kind of multi-center project looking at norovirus, kind of the natural history of norovirus. Because I'm sure you're well aware norovirus can be extraordinarily pesky, just kind of hangs out mm-hmm. in our uh, transplant and immune-compromised patients, flaring and then going away and flaring again. And also that project was looking at the use of nitazoxanide as a treatment option. So in, um, uh, I know we should be hearing the report of those results soon.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, let's dig in a little bit deeper into... Uh diarrheal illness, say, if I can give you a few cases, and then you can uh, tell me how you would uh, approach them. Sure. We'll start with a transplant recipient, immunocompromised patient who comes in through the door with just multiple episodes of loose stools, uh, unclear if it's bloody or not, mucousy
1: for sure. What do you do? Yeah. And um, this is not an uncommon scenario. So, um, as I mentioned, you know, what triggered my interest was just how frequently we see this it's estimated that, you know, patients who have had a transplant or immune compromised will frequently experience diarrhea. I think the first thing that I often do is kind of try to find out what's been going on with the patient. So what Mm -hmm. is the characteristics of the diarrhea? So how many stools a day are they having? Is it just that one soft or watery stool, or is it three, five, six, or more bowel movements per day? Mm -hmm. how long has it been going on? Um, Has this just started a day or two ago, or has this been going on for a week or more? I think the idea of asking about blood, so is there blood in the stool, which might point towards more of an inflammatory or invasive type of process, the mucus in the stool as well? Is there weight loss? Are they having associated nausea, vomiting? Are they having fevers? Do they have other symptoms that I might associate with just having diarrhea, but not a pathogenic process in the gastrointestinal tract. So, do they have lymphadenopathy or sore throat, which might lead me down the path of uh, CMV? Mm-hmm. Um, again, that nausea, vomiting, which gets me thinking about norovirus, mm-hmm. uh, or the, you know, rotavirus, or some of the other viral, or even you know, kind of food poisoning type illnesses that might be food related, or even asking about in my renal transplant patients, are they having pain over the renal graft? Are they having dysuria? Mm-hmm. Um, any symptoms related to a urinary tract infection? I've actually been amazed at how much diarrhea is associated with like the transplant pyelonephritis. And I often wonder, is it because of the placement of the kidney
0: mm-hmm.
1: the inflammation of the kidney, it's inflaming either the right side or the left side of the colon and the intestine. So I kind of start with those types of questions Mm -hmm. i also will ask about food so have you eaten old food unusual food uh, for you is anyone else in the family sick with the diarrhea that you have um have they eaten the same foods have they traveled so did they travel somewhere where the food is maybe much different than what we're used to eating so food that um, is prepared differently Did they eat street food when they traveled, whether it's both in the United States and outside the United States? So, you know, from a street vendor or from a cart, um, because we know those can be associated with different diarrheal illnesses. Another one, it's summer out, you know, here in the United States. And so I ask about water parks. Mm -hmm. Um, Water parks are a big source of diarrhea, especially cryptosporidium. Okay. Um, I've had uh, numerous patients that I've seen with cryptosporidium that can kind of link back to a water park exposure. So I kind of do both what are the symptoms and the characteristics of the diarrhea, and then what are maybe some of the factors around the diarrhea that might lead to an exposure.
0: You know, it's interesting you said water parks. And uh, every time I talk to somebody from the Midwest, they mention water parks. Maybe it's a popular activity or maybe Midwest plus water park plus cryptosporidium is uh, all the Venn diagrams meet uh, (laughs) because it's not something that we see that much here in Baltimore and D.C. Or maybe I'm just asking the wrong questions.
1: That's interesting. Um, Yeah, I'm not aware. Is it just a Midwest thing? You know, those are. Like the, the water parks are those giant, you know, water slides and, and what have you. And it is a, I think, right of passion, passage to, <laughs> to go to one of those giant water parks when you live in Chicago or in kind of the Midwest uh-huh. um, there are yeah, places that, you know, here in Chicago, most people go up to Wisconsin to the Wisconsin Dells, where I think there's like, you know, 10 or 20 different, you know, places that you can go for the water slides. so. And that's my fear is, is, is the water. The water always kind of frightens me in those places. (laughs) Yeah. So
0: is it a rite of passage to go to the water park or a rite of passage to go to the water park and come back with
1: cryptosporidium or both? Uh, The rite of passage is the water park. The cryptosporidium is the uh, added bonus. (laughs) bonus.
0: So then in terms of uh, you, you, first of all, One of the things that often happens even before the infectious disease doctor sees the patient is that they're started on broad spectrum antibiotic, particularly if they have diarrhea and fever. And uh, the the goal, I guess, is to treat a bacterial enteritis. And I I never know if it's the right thing to do. Do you have a trigger as to when to start or when to tell people to stop the antibiotics?
1: So I think if there's not a lot of inflammatory component to the diarrhea i'll often tell people to stop Mm -hmm. the antibiotics if the diarrhea is very watery multiple times per day i definitely tell them to stop because then i'm most concerned about c difficile Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't want to kind of contribute or or have that diarrhea worsen and if there's blood in the stool so i often kind of hold off on antibacterials if there's blood in the stool for that, I worry about um, some of the E. coli pathogens, mm-hmm. so the O157H7 or the hemorrhagic E. coli's, just because the antibiotics can make the not the diarrhea worse, but the illness worse and increase the mm-hmm. risk for the uh, hemolytic uremic syndrome. Yeah. Um, so I don't typically trigger to antibiotics right away, and if I'm seeing them or if I get a call. I typically will try to talk to the patient or see the patient if you know I'm, I'm in the hospital, if I'm in clinic, I'll try to call them up and talk to them or if I'm not on the inpatient side. But I will um, tell the team, you know, just hold off on antibiotics for right now unless they're really ill. you know, if they're showing signs of severe dehydration and shock, and they're having fevers and they have a leukocytosis that's pretty profound. And I think the likelihood of C diff is on the lower side then I'll start antibiotics. But typically, I'll I'll tell them to just, let's hold off and see if we can make a diagnosis or figure out what's going on. When you talk about C. difficile,
0: I've recently learned something when I went through this with a patient, prescribed uh, oral vancomycin for them. And it turned out that they live in the DC area and the only pharmacy that they could find that actually carried it, so, so they wouldn't have to wait until... Monday, because it was a Friday, of course, was uh, one that was near a uh, major university hospital is that many community pharmacies don't have it on hand.
1: Mm. Mm. That's interesting. Um, I have not experienced that here in Chicago. Um, Mm. We can get vancomycin fairly easily. Um, The biggest thing I've experienced is kind of the cost for the capsules of the vancomycin, just like with fidaxamycin can be on the higher side. Northwestern Pharmacy, and we have a relationship with the pharmacy at the hospital. will compound the IV vancomycin, which tends mm. to be a little bit cheaper. Yeah. Um, but that can be that could be a little bit harder to find. I know the capsules we don't have typically difficulty finding. It's more the cost because that can actually be over a thousand dollars for the course, um, and and patients can often be left trying to pay that full price for it, or, you know, the copay may be higher than what they want.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I found that out too, is that the uh, out-of-pocket price, if the insurance for whatever reason is not covering it or hasn't gotten their act together for whatever reason, and the, the person as they're at the checkout then it could be over $1,000. If there's a coupon from, say, GoodRx, it can go down significantly, but many people don't know about that app. And some people don't want to use the app because it tracks them. But uh, yeah, it can be uh, quite expensive. And a patient who is desperate to get relief from multiple episodes of uh, diarrhea, with, and then when they go online and they read about how bad C. difficile can be for them, they, they may just pay out the, the money.
1: Yeah. 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 They may pay for it or, you know, if they can't afford it, then it becomes really, you know, complex with how to get them the treatment they need quickly. Because I think for C. diff, you want to start the treatment really as soon as you think about it or recognize it. You don't want, you know, that's the one where I don't want that to go into, you know, two or three days waiting for maybe a diagnostic. You know, I look Mm -hmm. at C. diff as especially in our transplant population, they're typically on antibacterials or you know, our cancer patients are on chemotherapies that we know increase the risk of developing C. diff. Mm-hmm. And the longer they're without treatment, the more likely they are to develop more of a severe or a complicated C. diff. And, and then that's much harder to deal with, much harder to treat. I'd rather treat them early on or empirically treat for that if I really think that that's what's going on um mm-hmm. uh, um so i'll i'll try as hard as i can to get them the treatment if they can't afford it with our clinic luckily in the infectious disease clinic we have a pharmacist that is able to help us out with that looking for things like you mentioned coupons uh, whether it's good rx or other coupons that kind of help with some of the copay cost for vancomycin and for pedaxamycin as well um cuz that's even higher price than the vancomycin
0: so let's go through some of the therapies so um I'm 54, but sometimes when I talk about this, I feel like I'm a 70-year-old guy yelling at clouds, what happened to oral metronidazole? So is, that, <laughs> is that gone? Is that dead?
1: Yeah, I think um, I don't use it that much, and even when it was recommended, because it's no longer recommended by the uh, Shea IDSA guidelines, I was not using metronidazole all that frequently. I think the, the issue I had with metronidazole is I did feel as if the rates of recurrence were a little bit higher than what I was seeing with oral vancomycin. And I do think there was some issues with tolerability. I did have some patients that just would have worsening of their nausea uh, with the metronidazole. And so I think that's one of the reasons why there was kind of, there's been kind of this veering towards therapies that are better tolerated and actually may. Be better for the patient. And that's why you don't see as much of the use of the metronidazole and why I think it fell off the recommendations as kind of first-line therapy through the IDSA shape.
0: So, then we move into um, the the more modern therapies. So, oral vancomycin, the 125 four times a day for 10 days, I believe, is the uh, most common recommendation. And I guess the first question is 125, 250, 500. What makes you give any of those numbers?
1: So I almost always stick with the 125. The vancomycin is going to remain intraluminal. You're really going to absorb very little of it. And there's not much data that increasing that dose, that 125 to 250 to 500 offers any benefit from one to another to another. And as we were talking about, Previously, the cost goes up as you have to take more of the mm-hmm. vagal I think probably the best, you know, kind of case report data, anecdote data is with the more severe C. diff using the higher doses, the 500 milligrams four times a day. And that's when you're pulling out all the stops in someone who's having shock from the C. diff or potentially is developing megacolon from the C diff and you're also adding things like uh, rectal or enema-infused vancomycin. Mm -hmm. So I typically don't use higher doses than the 125 milligrams uh, four times a day. That's typically what I stick with. And for the initial episode, I'll use the 10 days. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to use the vancomycin.
0: And then uh, in terms of the longer episodes, do those or do you do those only if you put a taper in?
1: So when I do the longer episodes, I do kind of the taper pulse. So I, I kind of do both. And typically my kind of route for treating C, uh, C. diff is first episode. If I can access or the patient can access fidaxamycin, mm-hmm. I've been using more yep. Um I think it's truly a narrow spectrum antibiotic when we kind of think about narrow broad. It really only works against clostridioides. And so, Mm -hmm. it's very narrow. You don't have a lot of the collateral effects um, that even vancomycin is going to have. So, i really, when I can, try to use fidexamycin. But if I can't, I'll use vancomycin. Second episode, if they were on vanco, then I will try to use fidaxamycin um, Mm -hmm. as as a second treatment. Or I'll do the taper pulse. So if they were on Vanco and they just, there's no way they can afford it, but I can get them the vancomycin, I'll do the taper pulse. I do a little bit longer of the taper pulse than what's recommended in the guidelines. So I typically go from four times a day for 10 days to three times a day for 10 days to twice a day for 10 days to daily for 10 days. And then every other day as kind of that pulse Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, 20 days. So I kind of double the time with the pulse. I have found personally that there's been benefit to doing that longer taper pulse, whether it's because of, just a lot of the loss of bacterial diversity in our patients, our immune-compromised patients, Mm -hmm. Um, or if there is anything to kind of the, you know, having the C. diff go back to the spore form and then, you know, start to become more uh, vegetated and viable again during these kind of lower doses or the pulses. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure, but I have found good success with that. And so I typically will do that taper pulse and do a little bit longer. When I do it,
0: and traditional teaching is that the vancomycin kills the vegetative but not the spore form, and there's talk about fidaxomicin perhaps killing some of the spores.
1: Yeah, that's what I've I've heard, and that's where um, that may be one of the reasons why fidaxomicin might be a little bit better in terms of that recurrence rate. So we know that they're equal in terms of that first episode or or resolving the symptoms from C. Diff, where you really get the benefit with fidaxomicin. Is lowering that rate of recurrence. And so, mm-hmm. and that may be due to either it being so specific or much more specific for clostridioides, or does it have something to do with its effect on the spore form? That I'm not really sure. And there is some data for kind of the taper pulse of fidaxomycin as well, with it being beneficial. And I've tried that with um, some of my patients that have had mm-hmm. a more refractory C. diff, and that's the 200 milligrams twice a day for 10 days, and then 200 milligrams a day for 10 days, and then 200 milligrams every other day for 10 doses. And I've had some success with that as well.
0: So you mentioned the the, the refractory and beyond vancomycin and fidaxomycin, uh, there are some um, alternative options now. We used to and I don't know if we were doing anybody any good, but we used to give IVIG for uh, cases that were refractory, either very very severe on the one hand or sort of moderate but persistent. There's a new ish; it's not that new anymore. uh monoclonal antibody. Have you used that one? I might have used it a couple times, and you know, my N of two is in one person it worked, in one person it didn't.
1: Yeah, my uh, my experience is probably about the same as yours. I've used it. Um- Probably about a dozen or so times, but I would say it's about 50-50. And I don't really know then is it doing anything for the patients. I do typically reserve it for those that I feel are at high risk for recurrence. And I typically have been using it after they have their first recurrence. So I've used it only a couple of times during the first episode of C. diff, but most of the time I've used it has been after they've had that second episode. And I'm not really sure how effective it is. I don't know how much more effective it is than, you know, kind of the taper pulse or some of the newer therapies, you know, that are out there and some of the ones that we've been doing for a while, like fecal microbiota transplant, and now kind of this live bacterial product therapies that we have.
0: Yeah, the uh, Rebiota, I think, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, FDA-approved but I I have not used it yet, but I've heard of it. Have you seen or heard of anybody using it?
1: I have not used Rebiota and I haven't encountered anyone who has. That is the live bacterial product that is uh, given via enema. And so I think that's one of the restrictive factors with it. Mm -hmm. Um, um, The other product and the, I don't remember what the generic name of Rebiota is. I thought it was Rebiotics or something. Then there's the Voust product, which is the other newer FDA-approved. I think that's the uh, SIR-109 product. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's an oral product. I've used that in one patient who had had at least six episodes of C. diff, maybe a few more where it was hard to know. Is it was C. diff or just kind of the... You know, irritable bowel syndrome that you can get after C. diff. And it was successful. And I had treated that individual with multiple courses of vancomycin, fidaxomycin, bezlotoxumab, And um, that person got one course of the voust product. And as they're on month three and they're still diarrhea free, which I, I've been somewhat impressed with it. And that's the only person that I've done any of these live bacterial products. Um, I have done FMT in a lot of patients. So I was kind of our go-to infectious disease person at Northwestern for FMT. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would use the open biome product uh, when it was available. Before that, I would do donor directed. Mm-hmm. So the individual would find a donor and we would test the donor and then collect the stool. And I would prepare that and then do the FMT on the patient, either through a dop tube if they didn't want a, a colonoscopy, or I worked with a gastroenterologist at Northwestern, and we would do the colonoscopy. We were pretty successful. I think we had a success rate of about 85%, and, and we included transplant recipients. So we were doing immune compromise. So I had talked to, you know, being on the transplant ID service, I had talked to all the different transplant providers um, and within our group of uh, transplant ID folks. And and we decided that we would um, be okay with doing the FMT on patients that needed it. Unfortunately, that really got, I think, treatment really got affected by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that really affected it with, you know, being worried about SARS-CoV-2 in the product and I think some of the companies that were offering commercial products having some issues. And so um, I really haven't done FMTs since then just because of that.
0: Yeah, we're having it done here at Hopkins occasionally. Uh, It's always a little bit of a project to get it done, but it's done. I I have a a fantasy that I would have a patient with recurrent UTI due to... uh, Uh, maybe a sticky organism or maybe an ESBL organism, and that they would get C. difficile, and then I would give them a uh, FMT, and we would hit control, alt, delete on their GI system, and their UTIs would go away.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's a really interesting concept and idea, and there's those few, I think, small case reports of, of people clearing their colonization with some of these MDROs through the use of of fmt and you wonder if some of these now live bacterial products which are really kind of like mega probiotics because they just have numerous different bacteria you wonder if those might offer the same thing which would be very interesting as well so then you wouldn't have to do the actual fmt
0: yeah because this is so far from uh Clinical use, it still remains a, a fantasy for for me. But but we do have these patients that seem to be dancing between recurrent UTI and C. difficile.
1: Yeah, and and I think you're right on that. And and the you know the question becomes is the C. diff being caused by all the antibiotics from the recurrent UTI, or is there something going on with the? GI tract and the and the microbiota Mm -hmm. of the GI tract that leads to the UTIs, which then leads to the antibiotics, that leads to the C diff. Um, And I think it would be really amazing if we could figure that out.
0: And I have uh, some women patients that swear that the diarrhea is what then leads them to get the UTI, that uh, they Mm -hmm. they just can't clean the perineum well enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like I said, with our study where we looked at trying to find an answer or a diagnosis for the diarrhea in our, our patients, a large number also had diagnoses of pyelonephritis. Mm-hmm. And we just, the, you know, the data collection wasn't there. Or the the evidence wasn't there to say one way or another was the pyelonephritis causing the diarrhea or did the diarrhea lead to the development of the uh, UTI. But I do think that's a really interesting idea.
0: So when I was a uh, a resident, they used to be saying all the wheezes is not asthma. And uh, all the diarrhea is with a positive C. diff PCR is not necessarily C. difficile. And you've published some stuff on uh, drugs that our transplant patients get that can cause them to have diarrhea. So mycophenolate is the most well known. Um, and uh, at least I believe that you're published. It could have been uh, uh, something that I saw that had referenced your article. But what have you noticed in terms of uh, non-infectious causes of diarrhea?
1: Yeah, so non infectious causes of diarrhea, I think the list of causes is just as big as the infectious causes. But in our transplant patients, the medications are on are big causes of diarrhea and uh, both the mycophenolate products as well as the calcineurin inhibitors, tecrolomus. And I think one of the problems with those medications or where we start to see those medications be causing a problem with diarrhea, is as you kind of change the transit, one would think, oh, you're just going to quickly remove that pill, eliminate that pill with all the diarrhea. But um, I think what we end up seeing happen is you end up absorbing even more of the mycophenolate and the tacrolimus. And the metabolism is not just through the liver, but you also metabolize through glucuronidation and, and some of the factors within the intestines. And so it's almost like this vicious cycle that if you have diarrhea – from the medications, and you keep taking the medications, you absorb more of it, which leads to more diarrhea, and then you absorb more, and it leads to more diarrhea, and you get this just kind of vicious cycle of diarrhea with the immune suppressants that we have. And then you add on top of that, many of our patients are on chronic antibiotics, even though Mm -hmm. we don't think of them as traditionally causing diarrhea, but they're on trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, which is going to alter some of the Colonic flora, we know many of the uh, gram negatives that are in the colonic flora at some point are susceptible to, you know, the trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So that can lead to diarrhea. Other medications they may be on for their diabetes or for uh, hypercholesterolemia can lead to diarrhea as well. So there's a lot of different factors with that. I think outside of medications, there's also the other non-infectious conditions that our patients can get, like graft-first-host disease, even in our solid organ transplant recipients, so not just the stem cells, but you can get graft-first-host disease. And we've seen a few cases of that at Northwestern. Uh, The diarrhea can be one of the early signs of the Mm. graft-first-host disease. PTLD, I've seen a few people present with post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder of the GI tract, and they've presented with diarrhea, and you could also get some de novo non-infectious illnesses like inflammatory bowel disease. We often think, how are you getting inflammatory bowel disease when you're on immune suppression? But you know, there are differences in you know what's being turned on or what's being altered with the medications we use. And we've had quite a few people that have developed microscopic colitis or Crohn's or uh, ulcerative colitis after transplant. And so those are the big ones that I think of as non-infectious. The other one, Would be just strict malabsorptive syndromes uh, that people can get so whether it's related to irritable bowel whether it's related to a diarrheal syndrome that led to the malabsorption or in the case of ptld you can have some protein losing uh enteropathies that can lead to diarrhea and then bacterial overgrowth which Typically, I've seen it in our liver transplant patients because they get the RUIN-Y and they have that mm-hmm. RUIN and get overgrown with uh, bacteria, um, and that can lead to diarrhea. I haven't seen that in our kidney transplants or heart or lungs just because they don't, especially if they have an intact small and large bowel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, I've only seen it in the, the livers that have the RUIN or people that have had intestinal reconstruction in some way. And so they have kind of those blind or short loops of bowel.
0: Sure, sure. You can also see that in, uh, yeah, the intestinal reconstruction. Uh, after a Whipple, sometimes people have yeah. these blind loops. Yeah, yeah. It, the uh, You had mentioned the graft-versus-host disease. Uh, yeah, we've seen several in uh, uh, liver transplant recipients, and uh, it can be a really devastating process.
1: Yeah, yeah, It it can. And they get extraordinarily sick and it's really hard to control and the one way you control it is by immune suppressing them even more Mm -hmm. and potentially getting them to a stem cell transplant if they if they don't control it and so and it it could be very difficult to control yeah the ones that we've seen have just yeah i've been just amazed at how sick those individuals get
0: So switching gears to uh, a a disease that doesn't make people acutely too, too ill, but is a real problem, and that's norovirus. And uh, I've seen patients that have norovirus for months and months and months and months. And I know that you've been on the forefront of trying to find a cure for norovirus. And, you know, is it? Infectious doctor, the easiest thing for me is to tell the transplant people to turn off the mycophenolate. Uh, but you know that's easy for me to say; harder for them to do sometimes. Uh, what do you? What have you found that's helpful?
1: Yeah, norovirus, as you mentioned, Shmuel, is a it's a nuisance. So, and I think it's in my mind even more difficult and more of a pain than C diff or or even the recurrent C diff because. It has that acute phase, but then a month later, there's another episode. Three months later, there's an episode. A year later, there's another episode. And we don't have any treatments. You know, often we start with reducing immune suppression. What has been looked at in the past are things like uh, IVIG, both given uh, intravenously or inglobulin given orally. And there was some early case series that showed maybe there was some benefit, but Larger reports really show that that didn't have much of an effect. Ribavirin has been tried and really doesn't have much of an effect uh, on norovirus. One of the treatments that's been most closely looked at is nitazoxanide, which I think is just a very bizarre medication because of the things that we use it for. It really should only work on eukaryotic cells from the way that I understand its mechanism, but yet we use it for things like viruses, like norovirus. And I think that's because there's some been some case series that show the benefit compared to not using nitazoxanide. Like I said, uh, we were part of a large study led by Mike Eisen looking at that natural history of norovirus and also nitazoxanide. It's close to enrollment. We're waiting to hear what the results are, but I don't think we're going to see that it caused much of an uh, impact on patients. And so I worry we're still left with not a lot of treatment. The one thing that really works for nor- uh, norovirus and some of the other viruses, rotavirus and uh, virus and astrovirus that are out there are the anti-motility agents. So I mm-hmm. think this is where, you know, really slowing down that passage through the intestine can help. It doesn't clear the virus. And so that's the thing that we worry about, you know, are these individuals carriers of the virus and is that you know as they get symptoms are they going to spread it to other people but it does help with the symptoms so i end up using a lot of anti motility agents and i do try at least for a short period of time speaking with the transplant teams about let's lower the immune suppression a little bit let's see if we can get a little bit of immunity try to clear it and then get back on the immune suppression and i'll often try to back off the mycophenolate products um first one because as i already mentioned that kind of cycle of worsening the diarrhea but two i think that has uh the biggest wow. impact on trying to clear the norovirus and see if we can get it to work but yeah i'm always frustrated with how unsuccessful we are in some of these pathogens that we think of as like oh no big deal and you know they become a big deal in these immune compromised patients. Norovirus is one. Cryptosporidium can be another one. <laughs> um, I know I've had patients with Cryptosporidium that it's taken months and months and months to try to clear. So, but yeah, norovirus. Unfortunately, right now, no big breakthrough on the treatment front.
0: Yeah, the nitazoxanide is so interesting. Uh, one is I'm super happy that nobody got on the on a nitazoxanide bandwagon for. COVID, maybe because it's expensive, but that's the last <laughs> thing we needed is another one of our uh, <laughs> of our drugs uh, <laughs> repurposed for that. But I've had patients that I've put on nidazoxinide that have gotten better. Mm-hmm. And you'd say, well, you know, maybe true, true unrelated. And then they've had a relapse and I put them on nidazoxinide and they got better again. Yep. Uh, so I don't know what it's doing. If anything, if, if the clinical trial doesn't show benefit, does that mean that some people that go on it get worse is, is that subgroup buried in and in, and in the whole uh, thing? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't either. And and I've experienced the same thing that you have, where I have those patients where, you know, first pass, maybe I've been like, you know what, let's not do the nitazoxone. Let's see if we can do it. But they're just not getting better. I put them on nitazoxone and like three days later, they call me up and they're like, you know what, my diarrhea is gone. I'm like, all right, maybe it worked. And then mm-hmm. two months later, it comes back and sure enough, it's norovirus and the patient really wants to go on the night again. So I do it. And three, four days later, the diarrhea is gone, you know? And again, is it that, you know, power of the anecdote and that association or is there really something going on? I, I don't know.
0: But then I have to be honest and say there's many patients that I put on it that nothing happens. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. And is it worth, you know, treating everyone with a medication that, you know, can be expensive? It doesn't have many side effects, but mm-hmm. you know, it's the, you know, it's that balance of if there's no benefit, if there, if there's any side effects, that may be a problem, but do you treat, you know, those hundred people just to get that one person to respond or those that, that those two people to respond. Yeah, that I don't know. And that's why often I'll use it in either people that have really severe diarrhea, where just even the anti motility agents aren't helping that much just to see if it'll help. Mm-hmm. Or on someone you know who has kind of two or three episodes back to back where they'll have one, they kind of recover, we get everything under control. And then a week or two later, it comes back. And I've had a few of those where it's just been one after another after another episodes um and then you start worrying about the organ especially in the kidney transplant recipients because they develop a lot of uh kidney dysfunction and kidney injury from the dehydration that they mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: so you you touched on the concept that we as infectious disease physicians are also stewards of uh the cost uh in that uh, the cost of the patient with within is not very high but the cost to the healthcare system is uh Particularly if it's not having any benefit for the patient, diagnostic stewardship has become uh, a topic that we get interested in as well. And uh, in diarrhea, how do we how do we act as good stewards of our tests? Does everybody need to get the uh, bacterial net, the uh, protozoal net, the ONP, the uh, microsporidium staining, C difficile, norovirus, and rotavirus, and Adenovirus, or can we be uh, more choosy?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, the way that I look at diarrhea is that from our study, as well as others, most of it is going to be self limited and go away. Mm -hmm. So over 90% of people are going to get better. And I really try to test only when I'm really concerned about an infection. And then I try to be targeted. And have kind of a tiered approach. So, my first approach is to test for Clostridioides difficile and CMV. Mm -hmm. Those are the two I worry about the most. If I don't treat C. diff, it's just going to get worse. And CMV, if I miss it and the person has GI disease, is that disease going to start to progress where it's going to be really. A challenge to get them under control. So I find those are almost everyone with diarrhea that we see for transplant. I will test for those too. When it comes to the bacterial gnats and the the protozoa, again, we see very few of those. So in our study, 1% or less had kind of the typical bacterial pathogens or protozoal pathogens. And so I'll usually wait to see how the person does. If they don't have blood in their stool, they're not having fevers, the C. diff is negative, the CMV is negative. I may trial them on anti-motility agents at that time and just kind of see, can they get better on that? If they don't get better on that, or if they have fevers, blood in their stool, abdominal pain, signs of systemic illness, then I'll run, you know, bacterial cultures, viral uh, PCRs uh, and test for parasites and protozoa, we've started to change to the syndromic PCR panel for diarrhea. um, And so I'll typically do that in those situations. So I'll just do that syndromic PCR to see, can we pick up anything at that time? And that's only with those patients that either I don't have an answer to and they're just not getting better. And really the diagnosis of medication induced is kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. Or if they're having fevers, that's when I'll I'll try to approach that. Because I do agree, if you sent the PCR panels or that whole battery of stool test on every patient with diarrhea, it would cost a lot of money to the system, to the patient for very little. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any data that I'm aware of, of looking at the impact of those tests. And that, that I think is really important with a lot of these uh, rapid diagnostic panels, these syndromic panels, these nucleic acid tests or these PCR tests that just give you you know, 20 bacteria and 10 viruses, um, no matter if it's diarrhea, urine, blood, CSF, I think what we really need is we really need to know how does that impact our diagnoses, because if you find something, do you always have to treat? And when you do find something, our inclination is to treat. And so I often worry, do some of these panels actually have the opposite effect on antibiotic stewardship? That's what I worry about.
0: This is the microbiologist and you coming out. <laughs> uh, so um, just before we wrap up, prevention is, is a big issue that comes up. Now, uh, maybe a decade ago, C. difficile prevention was not pharmacological. And there was a paper, I believe, that came out of the hospital in Missouri. And then after that, it seemed like it's been a, uh, almost a practice shift in that patients that have had C. difficile that are going on antibiotics, at least at, at our institution, more and more are ending up on oral vancomycin as a prophylaxis, either it's 125 milligrams daily or twice daily. What do you have to say about uh, prophylaxis, pros, cons, or
1: is the jury still out? I think there's there's good anecdotal evidence that it, it is impacting our patients in a positive way, but I think we have to really look at the patients that it's impacting when you start thinking about the other effects of vancomycin, and I think there's a couple of even these case series with fidaxamycin as well. And so... I typically reserve it for patients that have had multiple episodes of C diff, mm-hmm. have had a, an episode of severe complicated C diff. So they were in they were in the ICU with shock or they had were bordering on megacolon, or if they if they have an episode of C diff, it's going to be devastating to their organ or mm-hmm. other untoward consequences. That's a little bit harder to distinguish, but I kind of look at it on a a patient by patient basis. And I do utilize the prophylaxis with uh, vancomycin. I haven't used it with fidaxomycin, just I think from the cost perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll typically do the once or twice a day while on the antibiotic and I'll stop uh, typically around five days or so after they're done with the antibiotic or sooner. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I really try to select the patients that I use it on. I don't do it for every person that's had C. diff. Especially, I think, for people that have had C. diff, but that C. diff diagnosis was three, six plus months ago. You know, if it was two years ago, I don't really know if you need to use that. I I think the more proximal you are to that most recent episode, Mm -hmm. uh, that's where you're probably going to get the biggest impact with Mm -hmm. that prophylaxis. I think it would be great to see a really well-designed study to look at, one, what is the patient population? Two, what's the dose? And three, you know, how impactful is it? Because a lot of this is based off of retrospective and and some of them, the doses are all over and they just kind of take the average dose. Um, right. And that's where you get kind of the once or twice a day. And so it would be really nice to to see a study that really looked at this to see if there would be an impact from doing it so. So any burgeoning id fellow that wants to do yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) work in transplant infectious disease that would be a great study
0: so just before we uh we finish any other uh things that you think that people should know about uh, c diff diarrheal illness infections in uh, transplant patients
1: yeah i think you know the the biggest thing is i think when it comes to diarrhea is really understanding What is the patient experiencing? So, what is their diarrhea? What's the characteristic? And what might be their exposures? And I think that really can help you narrow down what might be the cause for diarrhea and never overlook C. diff, CMV, and don't underestimate how much of a pain norovirus is. Great. Well, I'm going to steal a joke from Dr.
0: DuPont, who, uh, use this. uh, I hope that our uh, listeners pull up a loose stool and listen to this podcast and uh...
1: (laughs) well, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was really great.